Okay, so, welcome to episode 6. I'm your man Steve Harvey, and boy, we got a good one for you today. Part of me wants to explain that, and the rest of me knows I'm the only one who still watches Family Feud. It's been a long time since we've talked, so let's relay the foundation. Playing us in was Leap Year by The Roofcoats, a Boston-based 90s alternative band featuring episode 2 guest Mike Lawler. I'm Jeff Wallenitz, your guide through the people of the advertising and media space that I find interesting, and today's guest definitely fits that category. He's Adam Schlachter, most recently Chief Client Officer at Group 9 Media. Adam and I spoke about growing up Rockland County, what music has meant to him in his life, and how he went from being Buffalo's foremost party DJ to the New York advertising community. If you like what you hear, follow us on at podcast okay so on Twitter, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Let's get going. Okay, so welcome. Uh, today's guest, Adam Schlachter. Adam, welcome. Hi. Great to be How's here. How's it going, man? It's, uh, I mean, I'm on day 73 of uh, self-isolation. And I think, you know, so far, so good. Like no massive uh, injuries or, uh, you know, like no major accidents. But you've, yet. you've escaped the city. You have, you've, oh, left, yeah. you've left the big yeah. city behind. Yeah, no, I I mean I'm 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 out of there. I we left uh we left for the woods and ran for the hills a, about actually a little over a week ago uh to uh to Vermont. Uh, oh, North. yeah, all right. I'll yeah, rub it in my have, face, man. Well, it's I mean, look, at the same rate we left what we thought would be, you know, being trapped inside uh our apartment in Manhattan for for however long you've been trapped there. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, it turns out there's uh, the same sort of self-quarantine, self-isolation order uh, in Vermont now. So Yeah, but just with uh, more space and clean air. I mean, I'm literally coming to you live from my bed right now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, I'm coming to you live from an air mattress. Um, (laughs) So you may may have beat me there, but but I am looking at like 200 acres of uh, foliage and uh, fresh air, which is which is pretty amazing. Of nothing but wood, so it looks basically looks like like Rockland County. It, yes, where where we grew up. Yeah. It's, so this uh, is this yeah. is how I was going to kick this off. This is what's crazy to me. So we are about the same age. Yeah. And we grew up what ten minutes from one another. Yeah, like a mile. Um, we graduated apart. high school same year. Mm-hmm. Went to college in the same state. Yeah. Uh, came to the city. Worked in the same industry. Our children are both the same age within months of one another. And yet it took my sister to introduce us. Like, how is that possible? I don't know. And what's crazy about it is it took uh, uh, another friend, a common friend of ours, also from same town who went to college with me, younger than us, uh, to connect me to your sister, to convince me to hire her uh, for a job t- 12, 13 years ago at this point uh, and, and take a chance on her, which was the best chance I ever took uh, to make all of this a reality and connect you and I and, and so many other people in this like incredibly small universe, which is just wild to think about. Especially the advertising industry in New York City. But let's, let's stay with Rockland for a second. Yes, yeah, so let's stay with so, Rockland. Let's stick with Rockland. Grew up in Suffern, went to Suffern High School. Well, tell me about up. it. What did you? What was your thing when you were growing up? Like what? What? Like what got you excited? 
well, the, the funny thing is I, I grew up in, uh, in Spring Valley. Um, oh. and we moved to Suffern when I was going into high school. So you didn't uh, have to go to Spring Valley high school. So, so, so I didn't have to go to Ravo high school. Oh, wait, um, no. So you went to Kakiat? I went to Kakiat. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. See, we're learning things so, in real time. Right. So we were, we, we were almost, uh, this is, uh, it's Basharit, uh, as my grandmother would say, if she was setting us up to get married, um, <laughs> we, uh, I should be we, so lucky. Is you what my should be luck. Yeah. You should be maybe a lawyer, maybe a doctor, maybe someone who works in advertising. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I grew up in Spring Valley. Uh, my parents had, I was born in the Bronx, uh, where my parents had met and where they were living. And I think when I was like two, we moved up to Spring Valley where they, you know, were part of those developments from like the early to mid seventies that all, you know, sort of add water in a cul-de-sac and <laughs> instant neighborhood. Um, and you know, what's, what's funny is we, we lived there for, I don't know, 12, 13 years, um, before they did the same thing, uh, in another new ish development in the nineties, uh, and suffering like a mile away, literally a mile down the road, across the border, uh, from, from Muncie into Montebello, mm. uh, diff- different schools. And, uh, you know, I went from growing up in a neighborhood that was really transforming and, you know, it was people escaping the city and, and the outer boroughs to the country where they all grew up, you know, going to, going to camp or, or going, you know, away for the weekend. Um, that was the country. And then it became, became, the suburbs and where you know everyone moved to start families and 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 you know kind of raise kids and whatnot um and then at least what was happening in our neighborhood was people were starting to either you know their kids were getting older and they were graduating and moving out um you know to other parts of the county or they were moving to florida or whatever um, or even some back to the city um and my parents um, got to a place where my brother, who's five years younger than me, um, he didn't have like as as many friends in the schools that he was in. I forget even like where he was in, uh, in grade school. Like, and they had he had made some friends through extracurricular activities that were all going to like Montebello or Viola um, schools that uh, that if we moved a mile down the road, he could go to. Uh, and I would go to Suffern High School where I knew two people uh, from like <laughs> from like Hebrew God. school. Little brothers. Right. They get everything. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's we'll, we'll get to that later uh, <laughs> when, I, when I ask you questions. Um, anyway, so it, it was just it was funny watching our neighborhood, like, you know, growing up there with like people moving in and then watching it like turn over. Um, and also just the, the, the influx of the Orthodox Jewish community, um, coming from Brooklyn and the Bronx and, and Manhattan moving upstate. Like that was like the first wave of like a migration from, from the city and the boroughs, I think of, of like a, a mass migration of that community, you know, yeah, that actually, County. that really changed the demographic, um, massively Ramapo. Uh, yes. In particular, and you know that's manifested itself through a whole bunch of other things um, that I'm not going to get into now. If you want to listen to the This American Life 
<laughs> podcast <laughs> about East Rabbit Post School District, and you can understand what what that yeah. community sort of did to the high school that I went to. Um, but so, so you guys moved to Suffern. You went through Suffern High School. Yeah. And then, went, went, and I uh, went, went through Suffern High School, sort of my formative years, I guess you could say, um, which was, which was interesting. No, not really knowing a lot of people, right? Like not like having one or two friends who I grew up with again, like from like Hebrew school, uh, but not really knowing a lot of people getting to be incredibly close friends, uh, like family with some people who I'm still incredibly close with today, 25 years later or whatever. Unbelievable, uh, yeah. It's unreal. Right. Um, but it, it was interesting because it, it was like four years of, I mean, my parents lived there longer. They recently, just a few years ago, uh, left the County and moved, moved to Westchester to a smaller, like sold the big house. They didn't need the room, moved closer to the city to be closer to my brother and I, um, but for like that four years, it's like so much happened during that mm. four year time period of being in, in high school in a different place, um, making new friends, new bonds, um, new, like new experiences and, and happening during a crazy period of, of time culturally, especially in music and uh, in, in, in literature and art and in, in just in America. Um, it's sort of like a time that everyone I think would say like, well, it's a time like you'll never have again, like that your college experience, your high school experience, but really like what happened like between 1990 and 1994, um, it's, it, it was just wild, uh, reflecting back on it. Um, yeah, it's I, funny. we do talk about that a lot. I think, um, in general, this is, and I was going to talk about this later, but it's a good segue now, which is that's sort of when you fell in love with hip hop. That's when all that fantastic sort of Seattle based music came through great movies. We were transitioning kind of political eras, even if things didn't, but it was very clear that 92 was a demarcation line when Clinton got elected. There's a whole bunch of things going on societally then about how we were changing as a culture. Um, But talk a little bit about how music influenced your life during that time. It's, well, I mean, it was it was a period of time. You you, you made a, a great point. Like I fell in love with hip hop. Like I I discovered incredible music that was being created at the time. Just running in different circles and and being exposed to what other people were listening to. You know, beyond what I was, uh, you know, exposed to at home or like through MTV, <laughs> uh, which is how <laughs> yeah. we used to discover music. <laughs> it's like reading Rolling Stone and Spin and listen and listening to or watching videos on MTV. Um, and listen to the radio. Um, and yeah, like I came from a place where, um, like mid eighties to late eighties hip hop, um, it was like the soundtrack to a large degree, um, along with just like pop music in general, um, as well as being home and like going through an amazing, uh, record collection, a pristine record collection that my mom had, uh, you know, amassed and cataloged and, everything from uh you know elvis and the beatles uh and springsteen billy joel to uh zeppelin and the doors and and the who and and i mean just like woodstock you know sort of in my parents record collection which i uh recently just brought back to my apartment uh (laughs) to my everything comes back around yeah everything goes back around and it's like stuff my kids listen to you know with us because um, and there was also a period of, it was a period of time where I, 
and again, I don't know what to compare this to, but we're like classic rock was like a big force, right? Because it influenced so many, like through sampling and through, you know, like uh, next gen musical acts who grew up listening to this stuff or going through their parents' record collection. Um, it influenced the whole new generation of, of, uh, you know, of creators. And so at the time, like having been exposed to that stuff at home, hearing a lot of it on the radio or through like, you know, friends, older siblings, um, and some of those bands still, you know, maybe not Zeppelin or Pink Floyd, even though they were still putting out music, um, you know, the Beatles weren't around, uh, you know, the, the doors weren't around, Hendrix wasn't okay. around, but there were, but their influences lived on and it lived on through so many different, uh, acts and especially like what was going on with, uh, the grunge scene and like, just like the rock scene in general and the hip hop scene in the nineties, it just, it was all shaped through that. And it sort of gave birth to, I mean, to just about everything. Yeah. Uh, that, I've heard you say sense. more than once that, this this era hip hop and this era music is like the soundtrack to your life. Is it yeah. that? So what's what is it about that music? Is it simply that it's the music that you grew up with, um, or is there something more to it about hip hop? I would say specifically that you're drawn to. I, I think at the time there was nothing else to really compare it to, right? And you know, it's funny like a white Jewish suburban kid, you know, drawing like all these memories and connections to um, culture and expression from, you know, communities that I was very much not a part of. I didn't grow up in the inner city. I didn't grow up in the projects and grow up, um, you know, in Brooklyn or Queens where a lot of this sound was emanating from. And it was a statement, um, especially like the nineties native tongue sort of vibe was, it was a statement politically, um, culturally of, of what was happening in a lot of communities that I don't claim to know anything about um, mm. at the time. Right. Um, like grew up worlds apart, but the music like that sort of jazz and rock influenced blues influenced um, incredible sound. Uh, it, it was it was just something like you never heard before. You never heard loops like that before. You never heard drums like that before, melodies like that before in music, except that it was drawn from other, um, you know, from other previously created or recorded um, songs and that people were creating this new sound, um, you know, at a time where it felt like a lot of new sound was being created was, was one thing that, that hooked me. Like just the beats were infectious um, the lyrics, although I might not have understood what they all meant, and some of them were just, you know, like just playful, right? It was just rhyming, and it was it was poetry. But um, and yeah, there was obviously meaning behind so much of it. But um, it was this wasn't gangster rap. It wasn't um, it wasn't like raw hip hop. There were there were there was something else going on, um, and it was something I was just incredibly drawn to, and. And it was always a part of like my like repertoire of music. And it was, and I got into DJing in college um, just cause I was fascinated with, um, with radio DJs and, and mixing and blending music of different genres and finding samples and, and loops and hooks and connecting them to the actual songs or the different verses. And um, just cause I just got so, so sort of drawn and, and drawn to it and caught up in it. 
Um, and it was, it was life-changing. It was like, you never heard, you know, I, I'll never forget being in Tower Records, um, which for anyone listening that doesn't know what Tower Records was, go <laughs> do a Google search. Uh, and you had like, right. Now you had across the mall. Like that was like the epicenter of musical discovery because you it was the epicenter that. of Rockland culture. <laughs> right. It was, right, we're going to go to White Castle or the diner. Uh, we're going to the movies. We're near the comic book store. We're maybe going to walk around the mall. Uh, no, but Tower Records was like, yes, the radio is discovery, but it was kind of pop discovery, even though you could get a little bit of college and independent radio, maybe not as easily. Um, MTV was certainly discovery because it was, it was creating and breaking what was popular of, of the moment and certain things like, you know, you'd see, um, I don't know, a, a video for uh, a De La Soul song or a Tribe Called Quest song. And like, you're like, whoa, like one, you're putting like a face to this music. Um, and two, you're creating like a scene around it. And it was something that was infectious that whether it was rap, rock, pop or whatever, like, you know, people would, sort of fantasize and, and imagine what it would be like to to be part of what you know they saw you know through video did um, you um but, did you but, dj was, at your uh, college radio station i didn't dj at, at, at um i don't remember you know i might have i i not <laughs> not intentionally i might have <laughs> done something i don't remember but i might have like sat in for something once um i dj at parties yeah and you know, part of it was like you would go and discover, you would go and discover music. So you'd, so, you know, you'd, you'd hear something, you'd see something, you'd go to the record store, or you'd go, whether it was Tower or whatever, and you just sit and dig through, through CDs largely, but, but through vinyl, especially if you're DJing and you would, you would sometimes hit like, you know, a jackpot with the things that you could discover that like no one had heard or like they only knew that one song, but then the B side or or they only knew that one song but like the rest of the album had like lots of gems on it that ordinarily you wouldn't have been exposed to because MTV's only playing the hits or the radio's only playing the hits um and i got into djing college and, and djing parties mostly because it was us like fucking around in our dorm or our house or in someone's dorm or house and i i met one guy in one of my classes who was from the bronx he was a DJ. He was a battle DJ, which was the craziest oh, wow. shit. I'd never, yeah. you know, stuff like if you remember the movie Juice, totally right. So Juice was, and apparently, like that whole like DJ battle scene uh, was like faked, of course, because naturally, naturally, like like totally like like lip syncing a DJ battle, like that that's like the lamest shit. Get real DJs and like you know yeah cut away to like who the actor is but like actually have people doing it well especially so I, since it was such was a all I know. DJing was such a vibrant culture like that's you didn't have to go far to find no. people who could have done that reasonably especially in New York at the time or like and I say New York and I mean like probably like the tri-state area but at the time like yeah what was happening in the Northeast and largely in like other cultural uh, centers whether maybe it was in Atlanta maybe it was in Houston maybe it was in in Compton, but in the, or in the Bay area, like there was, there were people creating things. I've seen it through a lot of the documentaries on Netflix and, and other places, um, you know, that have been put out of the past few years. Um, there was, there was a sort of explosion of this sort of creative expression and melding of 
musical genres and cultures happening, a lot of it driven by DJing and turntablism, which was you know, through like the executioners and the beat junkies and um, uh, a lot of these these groups that were coming up and like composing music through the blending and cutting and mixing of, of, of music. So I, I got to be friendly with this dude who did that. Um, and I would watch him and there was a few guys on campus who had and they had their crates of records and they had their turntables. And like sometimes in the student union, there would be like DJ hours or like kids would battle. Like it was not happening every day, but it happened enough. Um, and it was at a time when like, it wasn't just MTV. Do you remember the box? Oh, Video totally. Box? Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, there yeah. were other like requests. I think you'd have to pay to like request a video to be played and then you get like a shout out on the screen on like the scroll a ticker underneath but and it was a lot of it was a lot of hip-hop and it was a lot of like not mainstream stuff that mtv was playing so there were other outlets where this stuff was being discovered and then you'd go to well because nobody and, mainstream would pay a dollar two dollars or whatever it was it's hard for me to remember now um right. to play a song that they could hear for free on tv exactly and I remember that being like another outlet and like, then we would get exposed to other things or you hang out at the record store, you get exposed to other things. So eventually I got into figuring out how to use turntables and a mixer. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't rap save my life. I had a couple, <laughs> like not even going to pretend, but yeah, I can't, no dance for sh- can't dance for shit either. But, but I grew up playing instruments. So I, I grew up, listening to a ton of different music um and under and and studying music and 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 just understanding like how tempo worked and how how you know like beats per minute worked and and how different things melodically would fit together or not and and how to how to you know sort of get a party going and it was just a lot of fun and even though i knew i wasn't going to be like the next uh, Mr. C or Fun Master Flex, uh, like I would go home and we'd go down to Canal Street and buy these crazy, you know, bootleg tapes and mixtapes of these New York DJs who a lot of them wound up being on the radio or, or being touring DJs or producers for different uh, rap acts and pop acts over the years. But like that was other influence because you'd come back and you're like, well, look, I, how did he blend those things together? That's so, that was a, such a great remix. Like, how could I do that? And there was no YouTube. There's no Google. There was no scratch dj academy like none of that stuff existed so you didn't one you didn't have um like a reference for a lot of it you had to know the music you had to hear it and you had to be able to relate it back to something else um two you had to find uh, a place to get it because a lot of these things were if you were especially if you wanted vinyl a lot of it was like underground presses or promotional stuff and like i even interned i remember uh, in college i interned at a couple record labels thought I wanted to be in the music business, which is a whole other story. But, um, but at the time, like that was another outlet for me to get access to, you know, to music. You mentioned creativity and that's, I'm, I don't know that this is the connection, but so you're at, you're in the blanket of SUNY and you come, you move back to New York and now it's time to, to kind of figure out what you're going to do with your life. And you wind up in advertising. Was that, was was it the creativity behind advertising generally that drew you in? How did you get from DJing in you went to Buffalo, right? DJing in Buffalo yep. to working in advertising in New York. <laughs> um, maybe it was a happy accident. 
uh, or maybe it was, you know, it was, it was, it was all connected. Um, I was, I was an advertising communications major, uh, in school at Buffalo. Um, I, I was, uh, someone who was sort of enthralled by what the era that met mad men, um, you know, tried to emulate, uh, you know, through, through the course of, of, of that incredible show. Um, I, I was, I was sort of taken by, the nostalgia of what advertising was um, and sort of drawn to whether or not that could be something I could, you know, experience and contribute to and, you know, create amazing commercials and create amazing content and, and things that made a real statement and made a real difference and made people stop um, and, and uh, you know, make a decision to be a customer or to purchase something or be an advocate for it. Like I was really into that. Um and I, I believe there is still, even in this crazy world that we're living in today, um, outside of the pandemic, just in general, <laughs> um, I believe there's still a place uh, for advertising to be something that, you know, can make a cultural statement uh, of significance and, and create movements and, and, and create action and create emotion, uh, you know, for, for people when it's done well, when it's done right. And, and they're just there's such an explosion, uh, you know, of places and spaces to do that now, but back in the nineties, um, it was largely, you know, it was TV and radio, it was print. Um, there were some amazing iconic, uh, print ad campaigns, whether it was, uh, everything that absolute vodka used to do, you know, I used to tear out those ads. You sure you did from everybody you know, did. From, from everyone did. Right. It was, it was like, what was your, your absolute collection was like, was like a badge of honor. Like if you could find, you know, the one that was the die cut that you put together that was an arc digest and you created like, you know, this little Scandinavian uh, living room scene from it. It was like, you know, or, or the celebrity ones they would do, the ones that would do seasonally. Um, it was, it was, it was amazing because it was such a, it was, it was, I don't know, it was, it was, it was such a unique thing that it didn't exist before. Like they created that, they created a desire for people to like keep advertising like almost as art in fact they've created a whole you know um, art foundation uh of of later since then you know giving way to different artists like they used to work with people like keith herring and warhol you know to create ads it is and, funny to right? me because things like things like vodka at least have a certain level of cool to them and so creating an ad campaign that resonated like that around vodka was always like these are amazing and I'm totally ripping one out when I see it. If I don't already have it, it's going to go right, right up on my wall with all the others. Um, but even when you think about the power of advertising, I think in a lot of ways is buried in things like the got milk campaign. Yeah. Um, I don't drink milk. I probably haven't had a glass of milk in 35 years and I'm not no, exaggerating I'm... when I tell you that, but <laughs> the got milk ads are so iconic yes. um, that anyone who was exposed to them during that time knows exactly what you were talking about. And it's something as simple as milk. Right. Uh, and well, that's what I've always found interesting. I got to work on that campaign. Um, so like cir circling back, like, yeah, those sort of iconic, you know, whether it was just do it with Nike or, or be like Mike with Gatorade, uh, ironically, two things that Michael Jordan, it was heavily <laughs> Just another involved. way he shoved that dagger into my heart over and oh over again. God. can't believe um, that's another podcast. Um the we're gonna have to do multiple episodes of this yes um, part two forthcoming part two but but when i got uh my first gig which was in um after interning in in 
uh, at a couple labels and, and for like a, a PR firm specialized in tech, uh, I got a job at one uh, where I got to work on the, the communication or PR side of, of Got Milk, um, which was really cool. Uh, and cause it was something, you know, you, you grew up with, even though, yeah, I also haven't had a glass of milk and I can't tell you how long, cause I think the concept of that is disgusting. <laughs> even though my, my kids have a glass of milk at least once a day. My son um, has a glass of milk with like a turkey sandwich and I want to yeah. throw up every time I watch him do it. Right. But then you're like, uh, milkshake and a cheeseburger. It's like, yeah, no problem. Yes, right. totally. It's not a kosher thing. It's just a, it's more of a sugar anyway, thing. Yeah, more I mean. of a sugar thing. But I. I, I fell into the business mostly because like I, I pursued what I thought, you know, what I, like I was romanticizing that, you know, I want to be some creative mind to you know, develop brilliant ad campaigns. Uh, and in reality, uh, when I, when I got into the business, um, I remember I was dissuaded by someone, a uh, friend of my dad's who worked at McCann Erickson, uh, she's big, you know, huge global advertising uh, agency uh, that had the Coca-Cola business for, I think they still do, but had it forever. Um, like, you know, the, the whole, um, uh, sh- share a Coke, uh, you know, campaign with everyone singing on the hilltop and mean Joe green, like all that stuff I think came out of, out of there. Um, which Mad Men also had a, a nod to, um, the, or like to buy the world of Coke. Um, but I remember speaking to the guy who was like the account lead, whatever, and he was basically telling me all the reasons I didn't want to work there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and he's like giving me like, oh, it's a slug and how many hours and it's just not worth it. And then like this girl comes in who was like one of the assistants and she looks at me and we went to high school together and I hadn't seen her in years or whatever. So we start talking for a little and she basically, you know, <laughs> agrees with her. Her boss's boss's boss. She's like, no, you don't want to work here. This is a place of fucking disaster. Um, so I go to some other firm uh, that today is now Weber Shanwick, which is a massive global uh, you know, communications firm. Um, at the time, I was at one of the derivatives of it. Um, and I got to work on a lot of cool shit. Um, I was 22 or 23 and knew how to use a computer and knew what the internet was. And I was the digital guy. I was like one of yeah. the two digital people. And I, I remember working on a lot of like stuff for big like travel companies, ministries of tourism, airlines, hotels, um, some tech companies uh, and milk. And I would go on like bulletin boards where people were having, you know, or chat rooms where people were having discussions on different topics to sort of listen in and understand like what people were interested in, what they were complaining about, like where there were, was there a crisis brewing, were there issues, was there bright spots, you know, and how could we call that into reports for our clients to understand like what the buzz was uh, about their business, their brands, the geography that we're looking at, the consumer segment they were looking at it in as sophisticated a way as we can understand it then. I um, do love how turning on, being able to turn on a computer was like a point on your resume oh that you could monetize back then. Like it, it was, was like, like an easy way to get a job. You're like, I know how to turn on a computer. I remember when I was interviewing at Turner, they asked me if I knew what PowerPoint was. And I'm like, sure, no idea. No idea what PowerPoint no was. No idea. No clue. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, sure. They're like, you know how to turn on a computer. Come sit over here. There's one on the desk. Right. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're like, I'm the digital guy. Like, <laughs> That's exactly Not right. even 20 years later. It's like 20 minutes later, you're the digital guy. And- 
yeah, it was, it was, you know, I was using, I mean, stuff that probably doesn't even exist anymore, but like at the time, like indexing web pages for search engines, this is before Google, um, probably right before Google, um, you know, like when Yahoo was a search engine, like web crawler was search engine or Alta Vista, all these things. Um, at any rate, after, after a few months, uh, the woman I was working for, who was a year older than me, um, got recruited <laughs> to go to a, an ad agency, uh, that was a semi-independent, like a boutique firm that had been bought by Interpublic, uh, which is one of the big holding companies out there and actually owns McKenna Erickson, uh, funny enough, um, and brought me with her, uh, which was like a crazy thing, you know, like she's like, I'm leaving. And in two weeks you're coming with me. And I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> I guess. What is that? Like, I guess. Sure. Like, and I remember telling my parents and they were like freaking out, like, Oh my God, you're not gonna have a job. I'm like, I don't, I'm going to follow her. Cause she knows, I think what she's talking about. And I remember meeting uh, the, the president of the firm and managing director of the firm who was two years older than me, uh, you know, and, and just <laughs> like, I, we went to be part of this fledgling uh, uh, digital group within uh you know, uh, a big boutique uh, advertising firm who was famous for doing, um, you know, television ads that were like Ken Lion winners and uh, really iconic work uh, for people like Mercedes and, and Heineken. Uh, and Heineken at the time, do you remember the, it's all about the beer ads? Yep. Yeah. Like you couldn't spill a drop. Like people were going to like incredible links, diving over things like, you know, like running through fires to rescue like, you know, that last bottle of beer. Um, that was what these guys were known for um, amongst other, other big brands, but like the Heineken stuff was iconic. And it was at a time where, um, you know, e-commerce was becoming a thing and uh, you know, like understanding how the web worked, understanding how um, you know, how to get people to sort of be comfortable, not just shopping online, but like, navigating the web as a as more more than just like a chat room but as like a reference as a resource for for information for inspiration and so on um like that's what we did and we did it for people like heineken and for marriott uh and dell and mercedes and and a bunch of companies that aren't in business anymore because they were dot-com companies uh and there were like 10 or 12 of us and that became like 20 of us and then we merged with another agency and it became like 80 of us uh, and I'm still very close with a lot of those people to this day. I've worked with a number of them on and off in different parts of my career and different agencies as clients, as, as, uh, uh, marketers, as, as just amazing, smart, strategic, entrepreneurial, uh, creative people. Um, and you know, whether you came in as like, I was like an account coordinator or whatever, and I left as a media supervisor, um, you know, my a uh, friend who came in as, you know, like uh, uh, an account manager, you know, left as, as a managing director, like well, all these things were sort of, the, the titles were kind of meaningless. The, the, the roles and responsibilities were somewhat meaningless. It, it was just, do you have a, a willingness to put your head down and understand how this stuff works and figure out how to make it work for your client who has no idea how it works? Yeah. And a lot I've of talked that about was, this before. Actually, that was a, that specific time was a pretty magical time in advertising. Yeah. It's it's weird. It it for some reason whatever it was um, around the time we graduated high uh, college, maybe a couple years before, right up until sort of shortly after nine eleven. I think coincidentally yep. that era 
in advertising was, I think, especially um, interesting. But ultimately, you spent, let's say, nearly two decades in yeah. the ad agency doing in the agency side doing a whole bunch of stuff, and then at some point, you decided to shift to the publisher side. So, what yep. precipitated that? So after, yeah, spending twenty, like almost, oh Jesus, like well, eighteen plus years, uh, agency side and and on the client side for a little bit, um, and seeing a lot of different things, and working in a lot of different capacities, leading big teams, building new practices, um, pitching lots of business, creating new services and ways of working. Um, I was uh, not thinking about about you know, career move, but, um, my, uh, friend and, and then boss at the time, uh, had, had sort of picked my brain on a few things about a new publishing group he was forming by bringing a bunch of different brands together. Um, and wanted to get my perspective on like, well, how did, you know, how would that work? And what about these different kinds of roles and how do you position these things to the market? And I had done a lot of big, uh, partnership deals, uh, in my last couple of agency gigs, you know, connecting big media companies, especially big digital media companies with um, our agency roster of clients to kind of you know, create preferred ways of working, whether that was like a first look at, you know, development slate or like creating, you know, new, uh, you know, new disciplines together and doing things with some air of exclusivity and finding ways to you know get more value for everyone uh, and the kind of deals that we were making. So yeah, we could spend your money, client X, uh, you know, on solution A. But if we did it in this fashion where we had more leverage through the relationship that we had, we can create more value for you. We could get you, you know, not just a, a better rate at which you're spending, but we could get more out of it, whether it's access to resources or, um, you know, building stuff that no one has ever done before. So as I started to talk to, uh, talk to these guys about that and like, how to approach it and the kinds of ways they need to start thinking about it. Like I remember being at a, at a bar late one night having drinks and uh, like we're scribbling this stuff down on napkins because um, they had not worked as a sort of portfolio uh, driven organization before they were independent brands, independent companies who, you know, were creating their own sort of streams, uh, own partnerships, their own ways of, of creating and diversifying their revenue streams. Um, but not really, you know, like they, they were newly brought together to, you know, kind of, it was like Voltron, right? Like the first time all the lines get to, like, they don't know how they even work. And, totally. You know, who's, who's going to be the head and how, you know, wait, how does right. this thing, you know, shoot missiles? And so it um, sounds like all that, it's sort of scratched that creativity itch we talked about, you know, yeah. a few minutes ago, right? It was, it's new, something, new challenge, scratch that creativity itch. How are we building something? Um, that kind of thing. So, so you decide to jump over. So give us like yeah. the group nine elevator pitch. Like what do you, when you as chief client officer walk out the door, uh, what are you telling people about the, the properties? So what I was telling people, because um, I did leave uh, group nine about a month ago. Oh. Um, but, yeah. Late so, breaking news. Here we go. Late breaking news. So um, I left uh, actually just to take a mental break after two and a half years um, and start to refocus on what I want to do next again. Um, but what I was telling people um, at the time, because what we had amassed was a group of brands that uh, had just in, insane followings um, and incredibly passionate audiences who loved 
really loved the content that we were putting out, whether it was about the things to experience in life uh, through a brand like Thrillist or the connection that uh, people and animals have to society uh, uh, through the dodo uh, and like how heartwarming that could be, not just in rescuing and adopting pets, but just the relationships that people form with their with with their pets or with animals in general or delivering the news and the news that not as breaking news but the news that matters because um, there's so many different stories out there that that matter uh, and that can make a difference in the world uh, through now this uh, and distributing that in lots of places um, you know we were trying to and I think to a large degree we found a lot of success in in, in creating new modes of content uh, creation by way of the formats that these things were created in, by way of um, uh, 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 so content creation, one, uh, experiences, two, in terms of like how these things were distributed and consumed on every social platform, mobile platform, every connected platform that people were spending time with, whether that was things that you were finding in your feed or things that you were subscribing to, um, that was creating uh, a whole new connection uh, that people had with, uh, with, with these these brands and that advertisers brands could have with these brands. So, um, so that we were able to do this in so many different places with an air of consistency from uh, the creative process from the brands, but also with an air of relevance to um, the places where that we were seeding and, and distributing this content. So it would fit in appropriately. Um, that's a very difficult uh, uh, gap to, uh, you know, to create a bridge uh, across for, for brands. If, if we were all about, you know, being next generation storytellers, it didn't matter where we were telling that story. It mattered that we were telling that story um, consistently and appropriately wherever it is that we could tell it, wherever there's a community of people that was connected to that um, point of view or that topic or that perspective or that, um, that opportunity to, to share that perspective, we'd find a way to do it. Um, and and we'd find a way to to build community around it, and we'd find a way to bring that back to advertisers and make it easy for them to be a part of that conversation, to be a part of that community, to be a part of that experience, part of that narrative, um, and do it at scale, which is the hardest thing to do. So you could be really yeah. successful doing it, you know, through one dimension, and you know, building a great Instagram feed, let's just say. But how does that pivot to someone that says, I want to tell that through, you know, uh, a six part prime time hour long miniseries on cable uh, world. And there's a bunch of companies doing it um, you know, really, really well um, from a creative or narrative standpoint. I think financially, it's hard to say who's doing it well because, um, you know, frankly, the commercial models are just all over the place and they're all and different. They're nascent. Yeah. They're nascent. People are still trying to figure them out. Yeah. They don't know what the currencies are and they don't know how to share in, well, you know, who gets paid what or what you should charge or what the efficacy is. How does this work vis-a-vis -vis other things? Um, it, I, I made the move a couple of years back because I wanted to learn about all that. And I wanted to also be able to take what I've, uh, you know, sort of amassed what I've learned and experienced through the rest of my career and bring it to be able to teach. Um, and the more that I could put in, I think the more I can get out. Uh, and it's, to a certain degree, it's like sharpening your pencils a bit. To another degree, it's 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 kind of taking if you want to play and you know advising and consulting with your clients to you know to help them make more of an impact and and that again doesn't necessarily have to you know just be on doing things faster and cheaper and better. I mean, to a large degree, it has to do with doing things smarter, so you get credit for the things that 
you want to get credit for. And those things don't get ignored as easily or tuned out as much, which I think in this day and age um, is really easy for people to do. Yeah, that's I, all of that is is incredibly insightful. Um, I got one last question and we're going to close it down. So here's my question. We're yeah. living in a an alternate universe now, okay? And you are the cleanup hitter for the New York Yankees. Oh my God. Okay? And you're on the top step of the dugout and you're walking out to get up to plate. What song is playing when you walk to bat? So what you want by the BC was off of Check Your Head. There you go. Now that's a that is a solid answer and a great place to close. Dude, thank you so much. That was 45 great minutes. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad we got a chance to do it and I'm looking forward to doing it again in the next global pandemic that we uh live through. <laughs> From your mouth to God's ears. All right. Thanks, dude. Bye. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. I don't know.